Judges 1, 21 through 2, 5. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and Yahweh was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please, show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. The man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Elab or Axib or Helba or of Aphek or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Sha'albim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Now the angel of Yahweh went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, and they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of Yahweh spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to Yahweh. You can be seated as we pray. God, thank you for your word. It is such a gift. 500 years ago, people couldn't sit in a room and hear the word, your word read in a language they could understand. They couldn't engage in serious study of your word, and yet your 
your truth has prevailed, and here we can gather around and hear what God, the creator of the universe, the almighty God says to us, and we thank you for giving us your word and giving us access to it. We pray that we'd approach it wanting to hear your voice, so ask your spirit, we, we collectively ask your spirit to work in our midst right now, to open hearts and eyes and minds, to penetrate deep inside of us. We have crusty hearts. Our flesh is strong. Help us by your spirit, God. Work through this message. In Christ's name, amen. They called them the Roaring Twenties. The war to end all wars was over, and the good guys had won. Big band jazz was hot. The flappers were flapping. The bootleggers were bootlegging. The college men were sitting on top of flagpoles for fun. It was the time to be alive. The slang included phrases like the bee's knees, the cat's meow, hotsy totsy. They called legs gams and boyfriends jelly beans. Ford's Model T was bringing automobiles to the masses for the first time, and the now widely available radios were jumping with jazz for all the kids. F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway were penning a new kind of novel. And in the time from 1920 to 1929 in the United States, total wealth doubled in those 10 years. Now, life was a bit like that, the Roaring Twenties for Israel, during the time described in our passage, minus the bootlegging. I don't know if you caught it, but everywhere they go, they are subjecting the inhabitants of the land to forced labor. They're winning victory after victory. So victory, and then they have more servants. Victory, more servants. Victory, more servants. They're spreading. They're really the centralized power in the promised land. And because they're coming into lands that were already cultivated, they have farms that they didn't have to cultivate, they have cities they didn't have to build, and wealth that they didn't have to accumulate. They filled much of the promised land. They've, they've taken key trade routes. And they have a whole army of slave labor at their disposal. I mean, where they're at in this passage that we read rivals the heights of Egypt the empire that had enslaved their parents and on whose backs they had built this great empire. You can imagine how Israel must have felt living in these days. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag people of God. Hashtag thankful. But as you know, the Roaring Twenties gave way to the Great Depression. October 29th, 1929, the bottom fell out of the stock market. The wealth evaporated in an instant. Family farms were lost. One in four people had no job. Shantytowns sprung up in which homeless people made makeshift houses out of boxes and abandoned cars and scraps of wood. And the same thing would be true for Israel. Their roaring 20s gave way to the dark days of the judges. A time marked by famine. 
in which some of the key stories that time involve rape or child sacrifice, characterized by time preying on the most vulnerable. They bounce from one foreign oppressor to another. In some ways, when you study this time, it makes the Great Depression look tame. And Israel never saw it coming. They're flying high, conquering, ruling the dominant power in the Middle East, seemingly enjoying the blessings of Yahweh, and then suddenly, boom, in an instant, it's gone. What happened? The book of Judges was written in part to answer that question, to give God's answer to that question. He wanted to answer what happened that led to these dark days. So, the whole book of Judges, he's trying to remind Israel how dark those days were. And he wanted them to see that he was gracious to them even in those dark days. But more importantly, he wanted to see them to see what led to those dark days. And he wanted them to see the solution. What the solution was. In fact, you can, you can organize the book around those intentions. So the bulk of the book of Judges, from chapter 3 all the way to the end, is reminding Israel just how dark the days of the Judges were and of God's grace to them in the midst of that darkness. The very end of the book, the last four chapters, 17, 18, 19, five chapters, 17 to 21, point to the solution. But our passage, really from 1, 1 to 3, 6, or 3, 5, the opening of the book, Show Israel what led to those dark days. How do we get here? I think of this section as kind of the prologue to these stories. Saying, here's how we got where we got before I get into the stories. And, and the prologue divides into two sections. So 1, 1 to 2, 5 is one section. And 2, 6 to 3, 5 is the other section. They both start, both those sections start with the death of Joshua. If you're paying attention, you see it, right at the beginning of 1-1, it talks about Joshua dying, and then it repeats again. He dies again in 2-6. No, it's two, two parts of the prologue. The first part focuses on more geography and topography, history. And the second section, which we'll look at next week, focuses more on concepts and theology. One's more back-looking and one's more forward-looking. So our passage is part of the first, the first explanation for why Israel went into those dark days of the Judges. And it, and it focuses on history and geography. You probably noticed that as I read. If you know anything about ancient Near Eastern history or Hebrew, you know I just butchered all those names. If you don't, you're like, wow, how does James know how to say all those things? Just made it up. But the author isn't a cartographer. He's not a historian or a mere historian. He's a preacher. So he's telling the story in a way that clues us in to the root causes of Israel's decline. Yes, it was the roaring 20s. But he gives his assessment of what's really going on. And he does so in our passage using three things. First, a refrain. A refrain. Secondly, a story. A story. And thirdly, an angel. A refrain, a story, and an angel. 
Let's look first at the refrain. Verse 21, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 28, but did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 20, or 32, for they did not drive them out. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. I think you got it. I know it doesn't say could not drive them out. It says did not drive them out. They could have. After all, they have no problem subjecting them to forced labor. It's not an issue of could have. It's an issue of would have. They did not. And the preacher is drawing attention to that even as he tells the story. He's hammering home that point. During, while he's telling the story of the Roaring Twenties, it's with a bold prophetic edge. He keeps hammering the point. They didn't drive him out. They didn't drive him out. You see what's going on. They're filling the land. They're having every victory they want, but they don't drive him out. They don't drive him out. They didn't drive him out. And it's really significant. It's th- that phrase, did not drive them out, is a significant phrase. It's freighted with great meaning and, and cons- uh, theology. So look with me at Exodus chapter 23. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, it's on page 64. Exodus 23. When God first delivers His people, He says, you're going to go into Canaan and I'm going to clear out the land for you. And listen to what He says in Exodus 23, starting at verse 30. Yahweh says, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you've increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will be a snare to you. You hear that? Verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out. Verse 31, you shall drive them out. And then the preacher and judges, they did not drive them out. God says he will drive them out, but they're supposed to take action and drive them out. By the time of our passage, Israel has better ideas than God. I mean, they want to be like Egypt. They're happy to have people enslaved who can do their bidding. I mean, what a, what a sweet reversal. We who, who were once the servants are now being served. We who were at the bottom of the food chain now get to enjoy being on the top. 
That's how Egypt did things, and that's how we'll do things. They seem to think that when Yahweh blesses, we get the same benefits that come from the idols and false gods of this world. That's what they thought. I think that's often how we think. I think it's time for the Western evangelicalism to wake up up. Just because our churches are full and our, our budgets are climbing doesn't mean we're walking with God. The test is not hashtag blessed. The test is hashtag obedient. How would God evaluate the growth of the church today? Would it be with glowing language about the number of baptism and the increase in attendance and the brilliance of our programs? Or would he have a refrain for us? I know I take a little liberties, but I could imagine something like this. With emotionally manipulative music and TED Talk polish, the Americans invited the masses, masses in convinced them that I could make their decent lives better. But they did not know my word. Instead, they ground the Bible down in a juicy self-help morsels tinged with just enough gospel to satisfy themselves that they were on the side of God. And similarly, the Canadians opened wide the church doors. Intent on reaching their culture, they accommodated their culture. While leaving the rudimentary gospel mostly intact, they muted anything else I'd said that ran afoul of the prevailing winds of culture. And so they produced a generation of nice Christians, but they did not know my word. But they did not know my word. But they did not know my word. Maybe it'd be a refrain like that. The test isn't hashtag blessed. The test is not hashtag growing. The test is hashtag obedient. This doesn't just apply to the church at large. It applies to us as individuals too. The world tells us to chase our own comfort, our own ease, our own wealth, our own name and reputation, our own influence. And so many Christians have simply commandeered God, assuming that He's bringing them those very things. And because He is, then He must be with them. I mean, Yahweh certainly is going to give me whatever the gods of this culture want to give me. And if He is, Yahweh must be on my side and I must be on His. But perhaps there's a better test of whether we are right with God and whether we are on His side. Are we keeping our noses in His Word, always letting it examine us? Are we constantly re repenting as it shows and exposes new levels of rebellion in our heart? 
God told Israel to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And the refrain tells us they did not drive them out. Instead, like the pagans around them, they subjected them to forced labor. I think we have a lot to learn from the little refrain. But you might have noticed as I read this morning, the refrain was actually interrupted. So we get the first instance in verse 21, they did not drive them out. Actually, verse 19 is the first time the phrase did not drive them out happens. But verse 21, they did not drive them out. But, but then we have a little pause, and it doesn't occur again until verse 27. That's when they really start cascading and falling out. Did not drive out, did not drive out. But from 22 to 26, there's a little interruption, an interlude, a story. And the story gives the second clue into what's happening. Now, at face value, that story seems innocent enough. Israel is going to be taking, the house of Joseph particularly, is going to be taking this town Bethel. So they send some scouts to go down and spy it out in anticipation of attacking it. And by chance they come upon a man who's exiting the city and they offer him a deal. Show us the way into the city and we'll spare you. The man accepts the offer. He leads Israel's army into the city. Israel's victorious. They spare the man. He goes off and establishes another city, a new lose. It's all fairly benign. Reminds us of a, a bit of the Battle of Jericho. Remember when the spies relied on Rahab. But upon closer examination, this story is far different from the story of Rahab and Jericho. You see, at Jericho, Rahab actually expresses her faith and loyalty to Yahweh before the spies commit that she'll be saved. And then, it's not Israel who delivers Rahab. It is God Himself as He brings the walls of the city down, but not her dwelling. Finally, immediately after, Rahab converts to Judaism and incorporates herself into the life of Israel. But in our story... The Canaanite man remains a Canaanite. And he's permitted to build a Canaanite city in the land that God has already given into the hands of Israel. As Daniel Block, the Old Testament scholar, called it, a sanction symboled of the Canaanite in their midst. Do you see what's going on here? We know from verse 22, right out, it says, Yahweh's with them. We know Yahweh's with this tribe, but by chance, a Canaanite is with them too. And who does the tribe of Joseph choose to rely on? Yahweh for victory or the Canaanite for victory? They rely on the Canaanite. Now we know from Exodus 23, they didn't need to rely on any Canaanite. God was going to be the one driving out the inhabitants. And we know that God had called them to drive them out completely. So here they are relying on a Canaanite. And as a result of their reliance on a Canaanite, they can't drive them out completely. And as a result of that, they have sanctioned a Canaanite city in the midst of the promised land. But I really like this story. Here's, what I like. Here's why I like it. It shows us how plausible Israel's disobedience was. I don't know if it's quite the right word, but it helps us sympathize with Israel. 
Maybe so easy for us, if this story wasn't here and we just heard, they didn't drive out, they didn't drive out, they didn't drive out. It'd be so easy for us to just kind of cluck our tongues and say, Israel's so dumb, they should have fully obeyed God. But by putting this story right at the outset, right at the beginning, after the first they didn't drive out, now I'm going to tell you a little story, it kind of ropes us in because we read it and think, that course of action makes sense. I mean, they're obeying the spirit of God's command, even if they're not obeying the letter of it. What's the big deal? And yet, by the end, they've sanctioned a Canaanite city in the middle of the promised land. I mean, it's such a small and, and plausible sin. It's easy to excuse. It's easy to minimize. But by putting the story at the outset, it helps us see it. It was decisions like that that led to Israel's ultimate downfall. And you read the rest of the scriptures in the New Testament, and then you observe church history, the same is true in our lives. When, when we are aware of an area of our lives that doesn't comply with God's call on us, even if it's small, and yet we press on, minimizing it, justifying it, we put ourselves in jeopardy. We can't trifle with sin. And the very nature of sin is to slip in subtly and then to balloon. It pretends to be small and inconsequential, but once inside, it applies a mild Novocaine to numb its effects. And then so slowly with with ample subterfuge, it goes to work enlarging its grip on us and increasing its sway over us. Brothers and sisters, there is a war waging over our souls. The devil is real. And he came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And his main tool is to allow tiny little sins to sneak in. Sins we're fully aware of, but which we choose to justify and ignore. We must be warned. We must be on guard. And so this, this story serves as a complement to the refrain. One refrain, but before I just nail you for not driving them out, I just, I just want to give this story a little glimpse into how this kind of repeated compromise came about. It came about because it made sense came about because sin didn't seem like a big deal. And yet, it led to a Canaanite city in their midst. So you have the refrain, you have the story. Now the next thing I'm going to get to is the angel, but before I do, I just have to make a little comment on verses 34 to 36. I already told you there's that refrain, right? Some tribe didn't drive out so-and-so. Instead, they subjected them to forced labor. 
We get a little hint as to where things are going because in verse 34, the subject is no longer the tribe of Israel. All of a sudden, the subject is the foreign oppressive powers and the object, if you like grammar, is the tribe of Israel. Just by using a little trick of grammar, I may end up subjecting them to forced labor anyways, but just by using a little trick of grammar, changing up the pattern a bit, it's like, yeah, it seems like everything's going along, conquering, conquering, but not driving out, conquering. Oh, switch it up a little bit. Just give you a little hint. This is not going to end well. All right, now on to the angel. Refrain story, angel. The preacher closes this section with his most potent punch. He talks about the messenger of Yahweh who came. There's nothing subtle here. The angel brings Yahweh's message. In verse two, one, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Yahweh rescued you out of, out of slavery in Egypt, he tells them. He reminds them. He powerfully brought you into this land, winning battle after battle, he reminds them. And all this wasn't willy-nilly. It was in keeping with promises he made generations ago because he's a God who loves you, who keeps his covenant, who makes good on his promises. He reminds them. And then the messenger reminds them of Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 7 and other similar passages. And he says, remember those covenants Yahweh made with you. He told you not to make covenants with the people. Now, Israel is hearing this messenger. They're going, hey, things are going pretty great. That's right. Yahweh did all that for us. And yeah, he's moved us powerfully. Yeah, he's keeping his covenant. And he told us, he reminded us not to keep covenant and make covenant with these people. Well, we haven't made covenants with them. Check, doing pretty good. Roaring 20s are still going. What else did he tell them? Not to tear, or he told them to tear down the pagan altars. Check done a good job tearing down those pagan altars i mean up to this point israel's still doing the charleston angel hasn't said anything to make them think they're not in the roaring 20s they're going god's done great things for us he's telling us all the good we've done i mean it's such a big deal we're doing great that he sent a messenger to tell us what a good job we're doing But then the hammer comes down. Right at the end of verse 2. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? The covenant said more than than to tear down altars. It said to drive out the inhabitants entirely, lest they become a snare. You, Israel, have chosen not to listen. So he tells them the nations will be just that. They will be a snare. Let's say you have a cancerous tumor growing somewhere in your body. There's a senior oncologist working with a, a more junior surgeon. And the senior oncologist tells you you need to remove the whole tumor. You've got to have surgery and get the whole thing out. Or it's going to spread and kill you. But if we can just get it out, we'll be all right. So you go into surgery, and the junior surgeon opens you up. 
and realizes he's going to have to do a bit more cutting than he was thinking he was going to have to do. He's not real comfortable doing that. So instead of removing the whole thing, he just removes a portion of it. Intentionally leaving a portion of the tumor inside you that the senior oncologist said is going to kill you if it remains. How would you respond when you came to and heard that news? How would the senior oncologist respond? I mean, you can't leave bits of the cancer in your body. It'll kill you. And that's how it is for Israel. Getting rid of most of these hardened rebels against God whose paganism is so deep and so twisted and so corrupt, getting rid of just most of them is not going to do it. Making them forced labor is not going to do it. They need to be utterly driven out of the land. And Israel hasn't done that. So God says, fine, you choose to leave parts of the tumor in your land, it's going to ultimately grow and devour you. And with that, the angel stops speaking. Now, thankfully, our story has a happy ending. The people realize the depths of their wrong. Immediately, they're cut to the quick. They cry out. They weep over their sins. They wail over what they've done. They chest thump their chests with deep remorse. Look at verses 4 and 5. As soon as the angel of Yahweh spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They even go so far as to call the name of the place where there is Haben Bochim, which means place of weeping or place of tears. And they make sacrifices to Yahweh. You know how God responds to repentance. So Israel saved. Only they're not. Because though they weep, though they weep and weep, though their chests soar with deep emotion, though they make sacrifice, the story ends with their tears. We hear the report of their tears. We expect some sort of repentant action to follow, but there is none. I mean, this is the moment where they finally get it. The Great Depression's coming This is the moment because they get it before it happens that it could have been averted. Israel saw it all clearly. The angel had made it known. They saw their sin. They saw their disobedience in an instant. And they're deeply moved by it. If only that could have translated, if those tears could have translated into true repentance, the pain and the dark days of the judges may have been avoided. But instead it ends there with tears. Now, there are some in this church, maybe have attended for a few weeks, or a few months, or even many years. You've heard God's word preached, and as a result of that, you felt your hearts swell with a certain level of emotion. And in those moments, where you feel it. You may even resolve, I, I want to take action. I, I need to just take the leap and embrace Christ. 
or, or I need to deal with that closet sin and bring it to light. Or I need to really just let go and embrace, to fully embrace Christ, give myself more fully to Him. But over and over again, those emotions have not led to action. Now I praise God for the emotion. Those emotions will do you no good if they stay at that. In fact, I think that's part of what's wrong with evangelicalism today. It's all about the emotion. We can just get people to have deep emotions and feel things deeply. That's what spirituality is. Come on Sunday morning so we can cause your emotions to soar again. You can ride the wave of that through the next week. Emotion will do you no good if it stays at that. It didn't help Israel. It won't help you. Tears without true repentance are like rainless clouds in the midst of a drought. They do point in the right direction, but ultimately they do no good. And so Israel plummets, crashes into her darkest days. It wasn't a happy ending. Now, the first readers of the book of Judges lived after the time of Judges. They knew about the time of the Great Depression, and they knew those were some of the darkest days for their nation. And God inspired this section of Judges because He wanted them and us to see the root causes of that dark time. He wanted them and us, He wanted everyone to know what led to the crash. And it was partial obedience. Because partial obedience is disobedience. Give sin just a little foot in the door and it takes over. But interestingly, God doesn't offer up a solution for us in these opening chapters in the prologue. He tells us what got us here. He tells us what led us to the dark times of the judges. But he doesn't tell us how it could have been avoided. Now, sure, we might say it's implied that if they just fully obeyed, this could have all been avoided. And to a certain extent, that's true. But when has Israel ever fully obeyed? Or more pointedly, when have we ever fully obeyed? course with five kids sometimes I have to correct them every 10 minutes one of my daughters when I correct her sometimes she replies do you expect me to be perfect we might ask the same question of this passage do you expect us to be perfect but the book of judges gives us a different solution Remember when I gave the structure, I said the solution actually comes at the end in chapter 17 to 21. Judges doesn't call us to be perfect. 
it tells us that our imperfection exposes a deeper need within us. A need for a king. So you just got to look with me. We're going to do a little turning in Judges. Chapter 17. Remember I said the ending from 17 to 21, those I miscounted, but it was five chapters. Tell us what's going on here. So look at 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 18, 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 19, chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And then the very last verse in Judges, the thing that's supposed to ring in our ears, that we leave Judges with it echoing in our heads. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, we would have all failed. Just like Israel failed. All of us eventually, given enough time, would have failed. We would have all found a way to disobey God and justify it. To neglect His commands, even though we know they were for our good. It's just the way of human nature. It's how our crooked hearts work. There aren't exceptions. So judges paints a very honest but bleak picture of where that leads us. But the solution in Judges isn't just to try harder to obey. You, may, you might remember what the theme for our series in Judges is. That's why we need Jesus. The solution is a king who can actually secure our allegiance and then lead us to do what's righteous. The rest of the Bible will unfold what that king, that kind of king is, what he's like. It must be a king, the scripture will teach us, who can conquer the sin that lurks within me. If, I, if he's going to command my allegiance, he's got to do something about the sin problem in me. It must be a king who has power over sin and with it the grave. It must be a king who can redeem me from Satan's grip because I'm under another spell. I'm under another lordship. It must be a king who can take my cold, stony heart and make it come alive. You see, the solution isn't to try harder to be good. That's what all man-made religions will tell you. We can all assess the problem is that we're not as good as we should be. Anyone in this room knows we're not as good as we should be. Even non-religious people know we're not as good as we should be. And whether you're religious or non-religious, everybody says the solution is to try harder. If we can just all come together, believe in ourselves, or if you can just do these seven acts or pray like this or do like this, you can finally achieve righteousness. You can be made right with God or whatever it is. But that's all man-made religion. The solution isn't that. The Bible says, the one true God says, the solution is Jesus. King Jesus. Or in the Greek, Christ Jesus. Which we've transliterated. Christ Jesus is a solution. And once we embrace His Lordship, once we switch to following Him as our King, He begins the work of transforming us. So we're people not only who want to obey Him because we trust Him, 
but also increasingly who are able to obey Him. You see, when we give sin a foothold, it destroys. But when we give Jesus a foothold, He delivers. When we turn and embrace King Jesus, we find our solution. Christians have known this from the very first days the gospel is pronounced. A few generations ago, we wrote a song, prior most well-known Christian song, Amazing Grace. Praising God. It's not, I just gotta try harder. I just gotta try harder. But it's His gift his grace in Christ of a king who can come and rescue us. Praise God we have such a king. Praise God for his amazing grace. Let's pray. God, help us to see just how dangerous sin is. Deceptive, numbing us, leading us to justify ourselves, leading us away from you and destroying us. Help us to see how dangerous it is. Impress that on my heart, on our hearts. May we not trifle with sin. But may the reality of our hearts also drive us to your amazing grace, to our King, our Rescuer, Jesus. In whose name we pray.